Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. We've come to the Friday show at the end of a week which had some monumental developments in state and national politics and even in the national political uh, uh, developments that occurred this week. Georgia was in the crosshairs at the center of much of what happened. We're, uh, it, it means we've got so much to talk about on today's show that I want to get right to our panel. It's Friday, which means today's the day that we uh, have uh, Patricia Murphy, of the AJC, political reporter and the uh, columnist who writes a political insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and who also oversees the Jolt, which gives you a great summary of politics every day at AJC.com. Patricia, lots to talk about. We should point out that you've already posted your Sunday column online, and it's an interview with Governor Kemp that you did with him just after he left the House chamber giving his State of the State speech yesterday. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had intended to really uh, talk mostly about the State of the State, but since that had just happened, we talked about lots of other things. We talked about uh, his campaign coming up against David Perdue, uh, running against uh, Stacey Abrams shortly after that, um, really how he's positioning himself for the next year um, and how he thinks his last three years have gone as governor. And so it was a really... um, It was a really good conversation. We are going to talk about a a great deal of what uh, (laughs) happened yesterday at the Capitol and include in that some of what he had to say to you. So I'm really happy you're with us uh, today. Uh, Kurt Young is back with us. He, of course, is the chair of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University, teaches political science there as well. Kurt, Happy New Year. Haven't seen you since the start of the new year. I know. Happy New Year to you, Bill, and to all of our all of our panelists today, and certainly to your listeners. I'm hoping 2022 is an exciting and productive year. Um, thank you for being here. Renee Alegria, who is the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, is with us as well. Before the show, Renee, I asked you how things have started for Mundo Hispanico in 2022. You said things are already off to a big start. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy Friday. Uh, Yeah, Mundo Hispanico does what we're doing, and we're planning a really big year, you know, across the board, I think, throughout the nation, just reporting what we need to report for our Hispanic community and those and everything that affects us. And that's, uh, you know, it's what we do. Well, you know, we're very glad that you could be with us uh, today as well. All right, let's get right to the news. Um, Patricia, on, on uh, what, Tuesday now, uh, President Biden, <laughs> Vice President Harris come roaring into Atlanta. The president, you know, uh, thumps his fist on a podium and says, I'm tired of uh, intransigence in the Senate over voting the voting rights reform bills, the two measures that had passed the House. We're going to get this done. And uh, and here it is Friday, and it's already looking like it's not going to happen at all. Yesterday, uh, the president emerged from a meeting with Senate Democrats on the Hill, uh, including Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, who have said they will not vote to remove the 60-vote barrier for getting legislation passed. Let's listen to just a little bit of what the president said. I hope we can get this done, but I'm not sure. But one thing for certain, one thing for certain, like every other major civil rights bill that came along, if we missed the first time, we could come back and try it a second time. We thank CNN for uh, sharing that uh, uh, soundbite with us. Patricia, this is just a devastating blow for the White House, for Biden personally. After all the noise, after all of the exhortations he made this week, and after having some voting rights leaders boycott his appearance here, he fails to get the job done. Talk about that. Well, I think that is why uh, some of those groups didn't want to be a part of the speech in Atlanta. I mean, it is a very weighty thing to come to Atlanta 
to go to Clark Atlanta University um, to visit the tombs and the crypts of Dr. King and Coretta Scott King, um, unless it really feels like it's going to make a difference. And I think that the voting rights groups, we were hearing um, out loud the frustration that we've been hearing quietly for many months now, that they feel like the Biden administration, um, frankly, owes black voters everything, uh, owes them the White House, uh, owes them those two Senate seats because they just worked so hard to turn out and flip Georgia. Um, and uh, voting rights, quite frankly, was not the top priority of this White House. Um, now, uh, COVID, <laughs> COVID is a reality. Uh, the White House has sped through um, other huge packages, $4 trillion of spending. Um, they're trying to get um, another $3 trillion of spending through. So it has other priorities. And I think that voting rights group said, uh, we heard from them, we don't feel like we've been a priority and we don't want to be a part of this kind of dog and pony show. Um, I think it has, you know, the president is trying to now at this point getting get credit for trying. Um, but unless they change their strategy, there's not going to be results of this very high profile effort. Kurt, uh, it, it is, of course, uh, important to note that this failure, what appears to be a failure, according to the president's old, own accounting, comes uh, just out, really hours before the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., which is tomorrow, the anniversary of his birth, and Monday, of course, the celebration, the annual celebration of the King holiday. And voting rights advocates certainly are making note of that today. Yeah, I think it was a missed opportunity. Um, and by that, and I want to appreciate uh, Patricia's uh, reference to uh, the glimmering image of Clarkland University in the background of those photo, uh, photo ops that we have there. Um, so... It's a, it was a missed opportunity. I think that it, it, the the civil rights leaders of various organizations that Patricia mentioned a moment ago were not late to this. They've been raising this question very early on in the administration. This is not something that snuck up on the administration. They knew that there was discontent in the ranks and files. Um, and in many ways, the administration put itself in a position where it had no choice but to come to Atlanta and to come out in front of the holiday, uh, or the celebration next week. Um, it was by it is no coincidence that it came at this particular point in, in the uh, time, in this particular timing. Um, and to get out in front of what we knew would come on Monday, which is going to be not just this reflection on Martin Luther King, but that image of King standing there with, with uh, LBJ signing these important civil rights legislations, right? We're going to see those images across the Internet and social media and hopefully throughout um, uh, national media. Um, but what it does now, what it, and I guess just looking at this through the lens of pure politics, what it does, though, is that it gives the administration the opportunity to say that we are fighting this fight. He banged the podium and said, I'm tired of being quiet. And, and, and that sometimes uh, sends the message of the administration uh, fighting the good fight, Bill. Um, However, though, I, I'm go sorry, ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, just one last point. One last point. However, what I think it does, though, is that it kind of show, shed light on where we knew Biden was all along. He's an institutionalist. He never took a position that he would uh, uh, push back against the filibuster. And so in many ways, what's coming out of Sinema's uh, camp and Manson's camp, uh, in essence, puts the Biden administration where it prefers to be, which is to find other types of strategies to uh, make these legislations, uh, 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 make these uh, 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 bills, uh, uh, legislation. Yeah. Uh, Renee, we should point out of course, that the anger over the inability of Democrats, the president, to pass either the John Lewis voting rights uh, bill or the uh, what what uh, the other measure, which uh, uh, has a lot more uh, detailed ways in which the federal government would have some regulatory powers over state elections. Um, it's one sided anger. These are Democrats who want this measure. If you talk to a Republican and, and when Biden says Georgia's the uh, uh, the center of voter suppression with its new voting law, we should be careful to say that's a Democrat's take on it. Republicans are rejoicing that there isn't going to be a federal takeover of, as they describe it, of uh, uh, the elections in states like Georgia. And of course, Georgia Republicans say, you know, their 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 standard line is the the new laws make it uh, easier to vote, harder to cheat. So we do want to point out the anger is pretty one sided here. Yeah. Um 
as we would say at Mundo Hispanico, Dios mío, this is a difficult and shaky few days to be a Democrat. Um, you know, I think, you know, Cinema Mansion, there was no, there was no surprise that they were, that they were, you know, that they're ultimately not going to change or vote to, to alter the filibuster in, in any way. They've said it all along. I think, you know, uh, so many Democrats, the Biden administration hoped, you know, he made that last pitch uh, effort to try. Uh, and, you know, th- th- there, there you go. Obviously, I think this is frustrating for progressives um, that these two Democrats are blocking almost all of Biden's agenda right before midterms that could cost them the House, the Senate. And, and some folks, you know, if we're being dramatic, um, could possibly put democracy itself in question uh, with the voter rights legislation. Um, look, I, I, I do think, and this is the point that you made, that the, that the historical resonance of the timing here with Martin Luther King's birthday and celebration just really makes everything a lot more poignant, you know? And I, 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 I do think though that anger moves people to the polls and, you know, if, if, if the Democrat rank and file are, are poised to, to, to really make a difference, maybe this is the trigger that they're going to need to, to get their voters in mass to the polls. I think there's some hesitation on the part of some in the Biden administration to really push these two senators too far, um, because there is such a thing as a senator switching parties in a 50-50 Senate. And we saw that happen with Jim Jeffords. Um, and when Jim Jeffords flipped from uh, uh, Republican to caucus with the Democrats, it flipped the control of every Senate chairmanship. Um, and any filibuster rule changes that Democrats make today could have the opposite effect if Republicans pick up the Senate by one vote, six, you know, ten months from now. And so I think there's just in a in, there is just this incredible rock and a hard place. But the longer you go on in an administration, the harder it is to move big legislation like this. And so um, the question now is, do they um, trim this down to something that could pass? Uh, do they wait until the election and hope it goes better than expected? Um, I think uh, it's very hard to see a path forward for this, but, you know, it's never over until it's over. So we can't declare it dead. Uh, uh, there could be a compromise out there somewhere, um, but they really have their work cut out for them. So, uh, Kurt, uh, Patricia suggests that maybe if you want to try to move forward, if you're Democrats in Washington, you look at whether there are places to trim the measure. And there are some that don't relate specifically to uh, counteracting some of the state election laws that have been passed in places like Georgia. One of them being, for instance, campaign finance reform. I mean, Mm -hmm. arguably campaign finance reform is an important matter, but it it also is the sort of thing that you could pull out of a much more focused voting rights bill, perhaps, and hope to get some – progress on on moving forward on this. Nevertheless, you've still got that 60 vote uh, uh, need uh, in the Senate to pass a measure. And I'm not sure you can trim out everything except the most basic details and still get any Republicans on board. No, I think you make a good point. And and that kind of remedy, that kind of streamlining uh, is something that can possibly uh, uh, appeal to a cinema and a mansion and others who may um, be sort of on the fence um, um, in supporting this legislation. However, there's a problem. The problem is that the concrete political reality right now is that those who are mobilized on the Democratic side, progressive, moderates, uh, African-Americans, women, uh, whatever the case may be, they are on the train of voter uh, um, protection. They are on the train mobilizing around the question of of protecting the right, the fundamental right of, of Americans to exercise the franchise of the vote, and it will it will take a, a, a an, an act of political savviness that I'm not sure is there to project a, a connection between campaign campaign uh, um, uh, finance reform and uh, the, protecting the fundamental right to vote. Now, of course, we know that there's a relationship there. 
But when we look to see who's mobilizing and what, what has to happen, if this is the reality that, that uh, Renee has painted and Patricia has painted that we're dealing with, it's going to have to be a massive turnout. The only option at this, the Democratic disposal is a massive turnout to overwhelm uh, these policies. But even that strategy would take multiple terms because of the number of senators that will uh, up, be up for election and up to uh, seats that will be up, up for change in a given, a given cycle. And so it is, it, it is an immediate strategy, but it's also a long-term strategy that can only really be sustained if it's speaking the language that's mobilizing these folks on the ground. I, I do want to bring up, uh, Mrs. Renee, I do want to bring up uh, the, the opportunity that this lays bare uh, locally. Uh, you know, Kurt, Kurt used the word mobilize. You know, there is now a vacuum of who is going to take the mantle of leadership to drive this issue into the hearts of voters. Is it going to be Stacey Abrams? She seems to be the one that's, you know, poised to do so. This could be her big, big issue, um, given the, the, the fallout of, of this and how it affects Georgians. Uh, so it is going to be very interesting to see how, how she deals with this and how she galvanizes, mobilizes, and, and you know, plots the future of the coming year. Um, Patricia, speaking of Stacey Abrams, uh, we all got an interesting uh, statement from the Abrams gubernatorial campaign uh, saying that there have been rumors um, unfounded and, and um, unfair rumors about Stacey Abrams not attending the Biden speech because of a conflict of scheduling. Um, and, and they condemned people who pointed out that she wasn't going to be at the speech. But the fact of the matter is they, they, the, the statement was an odd statement. It said Stacey Abrams had no expectation she'd be invited to be with the president and vice president. Well, considering that Stacey Abrams is the most uh, visible uh, spokesperson for voting rights in the country today, that seemed like an odd statement. And it does feel like the Abrams campaign is still kind of not willing to talk about why she decided not to be there. Yeah, she said that she had a private commitment that she couldn't change um, and uh, did not go into any more detail. That leads to widespread speculation um, and led to even more speculation in the days and the moments leading up to uh, the event. Um, the reality is that the Biden administration did not plan this long in advance, uh, didn't reach out to the people you think they might reach out to before they have a huge event like this. Um, and uh, uh, what uh, the Abrams camp was willing to say was that uh, the reporting in the New York Times that said that she had rejected this offer because mm -hmm. she was not invited to speak was just totally wrong. Um, and uh, if you sort of think about her role with the administration, she was considered as a vice presidential candidate. Um, it's hard to imagine that she wouldn't have been offered a speaking slot. Um, uh, she is the champion for this issue nationwide, the president would want her on that podium no matter when and where the event was. Um, so it does, it has, uh, because she's not been more detailed in her explanation, I think it has, though, led to a lot of speculation and assumptions that she just doesn't want to be on the same stage as the president um, when his poll numbers are hovering below 40 percent. Um, the Abrams camp says that's just not the case. So, uh, Patricia, while we've got the ball in your court, uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what Renee just uh, suggested and, and really uh, Kurt did as well in talking about this may mobilize voters. This does give Stacey Abrams another opportunity to once again show her fierce commitment to voting rights at, as a candidate for uh, governor and the, and and with Governor Kemp and and others uh, Republicans in uh, the legislature uh, celebrating the fact that no federal legislation has has happened yet, uh, it's going to be great fodder for her campaign, isn't it? Well, and that really was one of her primary issues in 2018. Right. Also, when Governor Kemp was the Secretary of State, um, I would almost say it was her primary issue, um, both the way that uh, she said he had operated in the Secretary of State's office staying on in that post during the election, um, it became in itself a nationwide issue. Um, what is just incredible how these events are unfolding is that elections are uh, going to be, uh, prop I think, the most important issue um, 
to Renee's point, in 2022 here in Georgia, if you just look back to a year ago at the General Assembly, you see the emotion, just the raw emotion that this issue um, unleashes among Democratic voters, um, and especially for Black voters, it's not a it's not a distant memory when voter suppression um, was was their everyday existence. Suppression in all forms was their everyday existence here in Georgia. So the that the debate in the General Assembly, I think, will base will essentially unfold again in 2022, um, and then you cannot take Donald Trump. Uh, shadow out of this on the Republican side. Mm. Republicans are fighting about um, the elections all over again. Um, and so we'll continue to hear about that on the Republican side. And Donald Trump uh, attacking Brian Kemp for not doing enough in Georgia's elections bill. So we'll, uh, we will be hearing about this day in and day out. Absolutely. Um, Renee, it is of, uh, of note that and we're going to talk next about Governor Kemp's state of the state speech and and, and uh, how he laid out a social policy agenda that is red meat for his base. But it is notable that one thing that uh, the governor did say, and Patricia, he may have told you this in your interview too, although I, I might be uh, confusing it with other uh, reporting I've read. But Renee, the governor does not want to see new election bills introduced in the General Assembly this session. We've already got a couple from candidates for lieutenant governor over on the Senate side, an elimination of drop boxes, uh, getting rid of the electronic voting machines, going to paper ballots. We're likely to see other uh, bills come along as well. But Governor Kemp has already said, I'm happy. I know he told Patricia this. I'm happy with the bills that we passed last session. He thinks SB 202 does enough, as he would say, to secure uh, honest uh, elections and give everyone an equal chance to vote. So, Renee, it's interesting. He doesn't want to take up that cause this time around. No. I, well, he's he's out there spending uh, money like a Democrat. Right. So that's that's what, that's where that's where what he's doing. Um, look, I, I I think it's it's you know, timing is everything with issues like like we just uh, or just, like Patricia just you know pointed out with with Stacey Abrams and her not attending. Um, Biden's speech, I feel like Kemp is selecting very tactically what he's going to align himself with or and not. I do think that he understands the changing nature of the, the Georgian voter. And he's it's almost like he's looking past Purdue at this point. And he's isolating the the real Georgian out there. And he's saying, okay, I'm not I don't need to deal with election laws because we already have have what you know those on the books. And instead, I'm going to give you know millions of dollars to education. You know, Bill, I was just saying a moment ago how tricky it's going to be to strike the balance between a massive uh, uh, voter turnout, um, particularly comprised of African American voters and women and others, others, uh, but certainly of those two uh, demographics. And its impact on the national uh, um, 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 political scene, right? Uh, particularly as it relates to the Senate. However, it's the opposite is the case in the state of Georgia. If there is such a massive turnout, it will register on the Richter scale, the political Richter scale in the state of Georgia. And you look, you need look no further than what Patricia just mentioned, which was the very close nature of the race between um, for, for governor last term. And and so those issues haven't changed. In fact, what you may see, as we've been discussing, I guess, about a year now, Bill, right, this this, this purpling of the state of Georgia, right, Uh, that it's not necessarily a red state, certainly not a blue state yet, but it's increasingly shifting. And I think when they just said it, the demographics are shifting. So if there is such a flood, uh, such a mobilization effort that turns out the vote in the state of Georgia, I think it would resonate differently in the state of Georgia than perhaps on the national scene, which, of course, Makes Kemp, uh, he, if anything, he's politically savvy, and he knows that uh, he does not want to, to pour any, any fuel on the fire that would make this a, a campaign issue. And it will not go away. I think Patricia has said it best. It's not going away. And I think that it is going to be one of the most important uh, uh, um, uh, platforms in, um, in Abrams' campaign to stand firm on, on protecting these, these, these rights. All right. I've got to get to our mm-hmm. first break of the show. Mm-hmm. As I do, I should point out uh, that our, our frequent panelist, Alan Abramowitz, who is one of the leading political analysts in the state, 
has been saying ever since SB 202 was passed that he believes it's going to end up, and Kurt Young uh, basically seconding this, is going to end up turning out Democrats in bigger numbers than ever before. We'll watch to see if that's the case or not. So let's get to a break. When we come back, let's talk about the Kemp agenda, which he started laying out in pretty great detail uh, yesterday. You're listening to Political Rewind. You know, this is absolutely one of those weeks when political news is coming at us so fast and furious that it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on. Um, I know that's one of the reasons you listen to our show, to Political Rewind, and I'm certainly grateful that you do. But as I've mentioned a couple times this week, you can now also keep up with the headlines by uh, subscribing to the Political Rewind uh, newsletter, which will come to your inbox every Wednesday. Uh, and I'll be looking to feature what I think are the top stories. Well, I'll be assisted by Riley Bunch, by Stephen Fowler, and others in our newsroom. Um, so I hope you'll subscribe. You can do it by going to gpb.org newsletters, and uh, you'll find us there. Um, we're joined today by Kurt Young, Clark Atlanta University, Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico Digital, and, of course, Patricia Murphy, AJC political columnist and reporter. Uh, Patricia, I think the starting point for a conversation about the governor's state of the state yesterday, from my point of view, given that, like you, I've heard so many of these over the decades, um, it was an efficient speech. It was straightforward. He certainly didn't attempt to weave in poetic references <laughs> and, uh, and in some ways give a flowery speech that uh, appreciators of literature might like. Uh, he just laid out an agenda in a pretty straightforward way in about 35 minutes. And as Rene Alegria has already said, the starting point was he's got a lot of money and surplus funds to dole out uh, right now. Uh, I completely agree with you. It was, you know, I think the speech was over like, okay, that was just Brian Kemp in a speech. That was very straightforward. Uh, there was no poetry. Um, it was practically wearing cowboy boots, which he does. Um, it was just very, uh, uh, very specific to uh, what he plans to do in the next year. And when you look at what he plans to do, especially in this legislative session, I think you really see um, the DNA of a governor who has a Republican primary in May and de facto as well, a very strong Democratic challenge in November. Um, now, that's essentially also the, the nature of the state that he's been governing for the last three years. It's not um, exactly as Kurt said, it's not a red state. It's not a blue state. Um, so what he has laid out is an enormous amount of spending on public education. Um, he did one of the very few sort of flourishes he had in the speech was to talk about the heroic efforts day in and day out of teachers during COVID. Um, he also had praise for school bus drivers and school nurses, and he'll have bonuses for them as well. Um, and a $5,000 salary increase for state workers. Uh, many of those state workers will never vote for Brian Kemp, but those are broadly popular issues for people who rely on those government workers in their communities, large and small. Um, there were there was also a lot of conservative red meat um, that conservatives, uh, Trump supporters in particular, will be looking for. They'll be looking for results coming out of this session, and so um, I think we. What I there there were a few omissions which we can talk about later, but what I saw were really deliverables to take into these elections. He he may have done these otherwise. This is it's consistent with the policies he's had, but especially the spending. Um, uh, uh, I think that that does speak to a governor who um, is doing things that he hopes are going to uh, win over Georgians. Uh, let me ask you another quick question and then get uh, uh, Kurt and Renee into the conversation. I mentioned on the show yesterday in talking about his spending plans that um, although Governor Kemp has, you know, been very firm in saying he wants these things, uh, Speaker Ralston has has urged that uh, uh, we need to be frugal and cautious in our spending. And I suggested that maybe Ralston wasn't going to get on board with some of these spending plans. But Patricia, things like an income tax refund, things like putting money back into schools at K through 12 and higher education, those are going to be 
issues that are going to be hard. The speaker's not going to ask his members to vote against things like that. Well, so Brian Kemp and Speaker Ralston are allies, and they typically tend to be on the same page politically. And so um, uh, it would be impossible to think they didn't discuss those items in particular ahead of time. Is this doable? What do you think? Do you think the caucus is going to go along with it? Um, And so those are things I think that will um, not have a hard time passing this legislature. I think when um, when Ralston talks about being frugal, um, that is to the concept of totally eliminating the state income tax, which is what David Perdue has proposed. Other members will certainly pitch that in a bill or two in this session. But I think um, Ralston and then in my interview with Kemp, they both laid out what they call just responsible budgeting. Um, the only reason they can have tax cuts is because they didn't spend a whole lot in the past, in particularly in Kemp's description. So we'll have to see what they do with it going forward. So, Kurt, um, Patricia points out that there are going to be people who will receive the benefits of what Kemp is proposing, state employees with their raises, who will never vote for him. On the other hand, he had red meat for his base. Uh, in his speech and certainly in his broader agenda as well. Um, Among those things, well, the thing he he really focused on in a big, big way was uh, critical race theory. Uh, He doesn't want it taught in Georgia schools. Uh, We don't think it is being taught. At at least that formal discipline is being taught in Georgia schools. Uh, But like Republicans in many races around the country, he's convinced that's going to be a big uh, issue for his base. A couple points. First, it just continues to just amaze me how uh, how distorted, oversimplified, and, and just outright uh, uh, manipul- manipulated this discussion on critical race theory is coming from the leadership in, uh, throughout the nation. Uh, critical race theory is a framework. It's a theoretical framework. And you're right, though it has not been implemented in K-12, and I teach at the college level, you, you may find a professor who will include it on his or her syllabus, but it's not a framework that's established as a, as a, as a, a current driving force in American education. So but what, does it, what, what does it provide? It provides what we saw unfold in Virginia with the uh, victory of, of Governor uh, Youngkin. It provides a, 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 an instrument to tap into one of the most important forces in American politics, and that is the extent to which political power is manifest in the context of groups, human groups. And one of the most important groupings that pursue political power in American society is groups aligned according to race. It is one of the fundamental dynamics of American society. And the argument here becomes, if the, if the issue does not exist in any real and practical terms, what is the political benefit of, of what is the benefit of politicizing this issue? It is in, to exactly accomplish what critical race theory points out, which is the maintain, maintenance of a race in the context of the American body politics, supported by history, supported by public policy, not necessarily by racists walking around with, um, with, with whites only or blacks only shirts, T-shirts on. It's a, it's a manifestation of the concrete realities of race in American society. And so what we're seeing here is an effort to strategically utilize public policy of a way of suppressing that conversation, which is exactly what Chris Grace is saying uh, to be the problem here, right? And so, but I don't want to drift too far and have a, a discussion about my, my frustrations around this dialogue. It is indeed being politicized in the Georgia, in Georgia politics to, to the same way that we saw it being politicized across the country and certainly in Virginia. Renee, let's listen to how Kemp framed his argument against critical race theory in his speech yesterday and then talk about it on the other side. Marty and I are also concerned about what we're seeing across the country. From the classroom to the ball field, there are those who want to divide our kids along political lines push partisan agendas and indoctrinate students from all walks of life. This is wrong, it's dangerous, and as long as I'm governor, it will not take root in our state. That's why I'm looking forward to working with the members of the General Assembly this legislative session to protect our students from divisive ideologies like critical race theory that pits kids against each other. Renee? I, you know, it's astounding. I, you know how critical race theory has morphed into fact. It is not taught in schools. There's no public education syllabus that has 
critical race theory as part of it. But it's it's ruled out as a as this insidious talking point that and I say insidious because I, I, I think that it's dangerous. You know, it's leading to uh, books being banned. It's it's you know, teachers are are afraid of of being sued, fired, um, losing their teacher's license just be, because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, you know, Kemp Kemp is using this this CTR, CRT, excuse me. Um, and it's, of course, reminiscent of, of Glenn Youngkin's campaign in Virginia. Uh, you know, Youngkin did really well with middle class white moms by villainizing Toni Morrison. I mean, that will that play in Georgia? Um, I, I, I don't think it would, but that's what Kemp's betting on. Bill, another uh, social issue, sort of very hot-button controversial issue that the governor didn't name specifically but did sort of give reference to, he talked about ensuring fairness in high school sports. Um, We expect that to be a bill to ban transgender athletes from competing in sports uh, that are not um, consistent with their gender at birth. Um, That is a bill that did come up last year, but it just didn't go anywhere. I think it was perceived as being way too conservative, um, way too hot. Uh, We definitely think that will come up this year. And it sounds like, uh, depending on what the legislation looks like, it could have the governor's support. Um, One item that he did not address really at all, though, that I think uh, would have been very uh, popular but I don't. I think with you know, David Kemp, excuse me, David Perdue in the race, um, he just can't go there. And that is dealing with Medicaid expansion. Um, we have we hear all the time from people who are uninsured, cannot afford premiums uh, through Obamacare. Um, hundreds of thousands of Georgians working but not covered by insurance. Um, Medicaid expansion would really address that. But uh, Governor Kemp um, really didn't address the Medicaid gap at all. Um, and it's something that I think uh, will be one issue that Stacey Abrams will absolutely be campaigning on. She has talked about paying bills of Georgians who couldn't pay their own hospital bills. So I think that's going to be an issue that was not addressed yesterday, but will be very front and center in the election. So uh, Patricia makes a good point, Renee, um, which is to suggest that certainly, uh, especially the hot button issues, the social issues that uh, Kemp is promoting are are aimed at beating David Perdue in a primary. Um, that's not like that is not necessarily the place to be if he gets past David Perdue and faces Stacey Abrams in a general election. It remains to be seen how many Georgia voters out there who are not dyed in the wool, uh, you know, re- uh, Republicans are going to embrace some of these things he's promoting. Well, it, it just goes to show what a what, what a tough spot he's in. You know, I mean, he's got to he's got to run to the right and produce flanking him, and then he's got to run to the left uh, because Abrams is waiting for him there. You know, with the plan, and you know, once Purdue uh, announced, everyone you know thought, okay, let's see how this is going to roll out, and. Well, we're, we're, we're watching it play out. We're watching him, you know, invest in education. We're watching him, you know, Patricia pointed out the, the brevity of his speech, right? I mean, he wants to keep it tight. He wants to keep it to just facts so that he can say in the general election, this is what we invested in. This is what we spent for Georgians. But not really, you know, frame that for the, the primary with with Purdue. I, I do think that this is just a, a all of say critical race theory and you know it's just a kind of a stark reminder of the major changes that this country is going through. You know, generationally you see one generation just living a completely different universe than what has gone before them. And that, you know, that that Gen Z, you know, they they vote. Be you know, watch out, Kurt. That is a really, really uh, pertinent point to make. 
And I'd love to hear you comment on, on it before we have to get to our final break. Yeah, I mean, I was as Renee was talking, I was thinking that's, that's such an important point. And also, Renee, not only um, the previous generation, but the different different lived experience of groups with who are uh, part of the same generation, right? Uh, on the extent to which we they look at the political reality and see two totally different uh, realities and. I, I, that makes sense to me in the context of the other, and I think you mentioned it yourself. The other major balancing act that Trump, uh, that that uh, um, Kemp has to balance, that that is indeed the fact that this is a, a Republican Party that's pretty much uh, uh, still led by the former president uh, Donald Trump. Uh, uh, his confrontation with Purdue is essentially a confrontation with Donald Trump, and we have yet to see if Donald Trump's endorsement power is still as such as it has been in the past. I think there are signals that it's waning. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, the other states where it may be waning aren't Georgia. And uh, Georgia could be a very, very different kind of reality, and, and Kemp has to deal with that Trump voice in yeah, that context. Before we do have to take a break, one last uh, question for you, Patricia, or comment, really, observation. Mm-hmm. When I read your column with Governor Kemp, um, when, when, he, when you talked with him about the Purdue race— uh, the impression I came away with is that the governor, at the very least, wants to portray himself as calm and confident about the outcome of this primary. Yes? Uh, you know, I was, frankly, um, really, it really struck me how incredibly relaxed he was yesterday. Um, I certainly in um, our political coverage, we know what he's facing. His um, you know, grassroots Republicans around the state are not relaxed. <laughs> People supporting <laughs> Brian Kemp are not relaxed. They are kind of freaking out, actually. But Brian Kemp really seems at peace with what he's done so far. And um, it's not that he's not worried. He, he's very competitive. He was not nice about David Perdue. Um, he really said, you know, anybody who's playing politics, it's David Perdue. The only reason we can even have a tax cut is because of what I did. Ask David Perdue how he's going to pay for that thing, you know. It, he was. It's not. He's not competitive, but he was just very relaxed, and I was kind of surprised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, I wish I had a transcript of the remarks in front of me. But when uh, Speaker Ralston introduced Kemp yesterday. He came as close to a formal endorsement of the governor for re-election as yes. you could possibly ask for, didn't he, Patricia? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> he was, you know, he, we, there is this David Perdue challenge out there. There is Donald Trump watching what everybody does or getting reports of it. And uh, uh, Speaker Ralston said, I'm so proud of this governor. Yeah. This governor has led this state in a, no, in a way nobody else could and nobody else will, you know. Really, we know who. It sure sounded like we know who Boston is going to vote for. All right. Let's do this. Um, I'm late for our final break. Let's get to it. When we come back, we got to talk about another Biden defeat this week. That was in the United States Supreme Court. You're listening to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, I want to get to the Supreme Court and their decision on the vaccine mandate for big businesses in a second here. But real quickly, uh, we have an interesting story that developed in the state Senate yesterday that I want to get a quick response from you on. Jeff Duncan, lieutenant governor, pretty well uh, (laughs) uh, put a dagger in the heart of the Buckhead City movement on the Senate side. Who did he assign to take up? the uh, measure that would allow voters the chance to vote for a city of Buckhead. Well, he's put that effort in the hands of State Senator Lester Jackson, who's a Democrat from Savannah. <laughs> and all of the members of that Urban Affairs Committee are Democrats who have opposed yes. this move all along. Yes, exactly. Uh, one Democrat said, it's not dead, but it's in a body bag. And they're like, well, that almost sounds worse. Um <laughs> It's not a complete roadblock, uh, but it's a very high-speed bump, I would say. There will be a House bill, but it's this is not a good opening act for the Buckhead City effort. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, let's, uh, Patricia, talk about the Supreme Court. We all know at this point the Supreme Court ruled yesterday that the Biden mandate to uh, have employees of companies with over 100 people either uh, have them vaccinated or uh, weekly tests to prove that they're not positive Um, It was a blow to the administration. The only comfort they got was the Supreme Court said their health care, their mandate for health care workers 
uh, could move forward. All in all, but here's what I want to ask you about this, Patricia. Um, it strikes me that in some ways this makes the decision-making for big businesses even more difficult. You know, at least if they had the mandate, they'd say, well, the government's making us do this. Now they got to figure it all out on their own. That's right. And I think a number of big businesses appreciated having just, frankly, the political cover of saying, well, hey, you can't don't blame us. We you have to get vaccinated because the federal government said so. Um, it is a big blow to this administration, not just on the merits, um, which are very real. But I think it's starting to create this question in people's minds. You know, is it possible that Joe Biden is a good person, but not a very good president? Um, it, it doesn't seem like they've got everything buttoned up right now. And yeah. uh, they're, they've got had a, a string of defeats here in the last couple of, of days. Yeah, there's going to be we're going to on, on another show have a larger conversation about how the Biden administration is staging each of the efforts they're trying to make. Uh, to uh, pass their agenda in Congress or to get their messaging out to the American people. We'll save that for a different show. But, Kurt, I want to mention something. You know, Georgia, of course, has been deeply involved in these lawsuits opposing all of the vaccine mandates that the Biden administration has put forward. And, And I want to read you a quote from Attorney General Chris Carr yesterday. He said this, this mandate was nothing more than an illegal power grab operating under the guise of workplace safety. Now, here's why I'm asking about that, Kurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand that state governments, especially now in this case, Republican state governments, want to maintain a level of control without interference from the feds. You know, you could say, fine, go ahead, see how far you get in courts with that sort of thing. But do we really believe that Chris Carr thinks that this is a power grab by a power-hungry administration rather than an effort to protect people against COVID. That strikes me as a purely political statement that doesn't do him justice in terms of the work he's trying to get accomplished. Well, you know, the, the, the local politics or the state politics are going to be Michael Collins' national politics. And the national tone has been set before the Biden administration arrived, which was that this, this pandemic was politicized in America. It was criticized in ways that we hadn't seen uh, on, on less uh, uh, prominent, less uh, uh, consequential issues. Uh, this uh, this might have been, have been politicized from the very beginning. And not only has the issue been politicized, politicized of course, we've already been discussing for much of the time how uh, the nature of the politicizing of the American political process in general, beyond any particular policy issue. And so what you see in resonating in the state of Georgia is a reflection of what's happening nationally around this issue. Now you add to that one final ingredient, and that is the extent to which um, there is this, this, this lack of polity in the American political system and discourse right now. And that's, it's certainly occurring at the state level. And, and I, don't, I don't want to continue to, to, to make a, a, a monster out of Donald Trump, but he's, his, his shadow is still there. And so in many ways, it's, it, it, it will reflect in the way that we even talk about politics among state, uh, um, um, state political leaders. You know what I thought was uh, very interesting, um, and, and, and it was even made so much more so. I read this piece in The Nation. Um, I forget mm-hmm. the name of the journalist. I should know that. But, uh, and they pointed out that, um, that the vaccinated boosted and, and remote working justices, okay, are not anti-vax, but they're more anti-labor. And it was an interesting way to frame this, you know, that they struck down the part of, of laws that protect workers or would inconvenience and cost mm-hmm. employers money. And what are the broad effects of that weaving its way down through courts as the Supreme Court is, you know, their decisions hold sway uh, uh, in every court around the country. Um, you know, they, they, vaccines are required in schools, health, healthcare workers. Um, the, the court did uphold, and this is something for the Biden administration, they, they did uphold the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. Yeah. Um, just, just not large employers like, uh, like say the meatpacking, uh, plants or the grocery stores, which had huge numbers of outbreaks and deaths at the beginning sure. of the pandemic, they 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 forgot that, right? And I think I think their decision, unfortunately, leaves a patchwork of state and local vaccine and testing policies uh, 
that the lowest paid, most vulnerable and hardest hit by the virus, um, they can't they can't go remote, you know, so it's 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 troubling. Yeah. The minority justices, uh, in their uh, uh, opinion, uh, said uh, the court is trying to take the place of public health officials in deciding what's uh, necessary to protect people. Um, Patricia, in closing the show today, the reason I mentioned the Chris Carr comment is it seems that this has been a week of political hyperbole on both sides of the aisle that has not done much to advance the real agenda, the needs of the people of this country. So Chris Carr says this is an illegal power grab, not an effort to help protect people. On the other hand, you have Democrats accusing those who oppose the voting rights bills of being like Bull Connor, like George Wallace, which is hyperbolic in its own way and just help makes us understand over and over that partisan politics uh, prevails over reason in all, almost everything we talk about these days. Yeah, you know, and that's disappointing, uh, disappointing as a political uh, reporter who got into this because I really do have so much um, respect for, uh, you know, the people who try and do it right. Exactly. You know, and it, you know so uh, it is. It's sad. If you leave Atlanta and Washington and get around the state, you'll see lots of it, which makes me feel good. Um well, thank you so much uh, for those last comments, because that's how I feel, too, Patricia. I love talking about policy and how politicians work together to accomplish agendas and did that for most of my career. And it is dispiriting to be at the place we are today. But on Political Rewind, we'll continue to have the smartest conversations we can and hope that it makes some difference to people out there who are listening to us. So, uh, Patricia Murphy, uh, we'll post a link to your column today with Brian Kemp. Uh, thank you, Renee Alegria, Kurt Young. It's been a real pleasure to have you here for a terrific conversation today at the end of an intense week in politics. As we leave you, my thanks as always, to our engineer, Jesse Neiswanger, to our producer, Sam Burmes-Dawes, to our senior producer, producer, Natalie Mendenhall, thank you for the work you do every day to make Political Rewind better. We're out of time. We're back again on Monday. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask and go get that booster that you've been putting off for a while now. See you all next week. when information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.